Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning. And Merry Christmas. It's Christmas time. Yes, nice and cold out. Now we just need some more snow. Yes, no, yes, we do. We need lots of it, lots of it. If it's going to be cold, you ought to have snow. Otherwise, it's just cold death everywhere you look. And more importantly, I have a snowmobile. <clears throat> anyway, so... Uh, good to have you with us this morning. Good morning to those in Appleton and Stevens Point, our family over there. Uh, last week, my uh, good friend, Dr. Tim Kimmel, was with us, and uh, he shared uh, along several lines. There was a couple of things that he said that really struck me uh, when he was talking about the difference between having a scarcity mentality and a generous mentality. And as he was describing a scarcity mentality, man, did all of a sudden things become clear for me to understand so many people. There are people that live in a scarcity mentality. We're not just talking about money, although they can be as tight as they can possibly be. Uh, pennies scream in their presence. But, uh, but with, with time and with people, and everything is always a threat to them. If you spend too much time with somebody else instead of with me, they freak. There's people like that in their friendships. Uh, um, you know, all, all kinds of weird things. Uh, there's people that uh, whenever you talk about money, and uh, <clears throat> today we'll be talking about money. You know, we don't do that a whole lot around here, but uh, uh, we do because we're doing this special offering at the end of the service, our above and beyond annual campaign that we use to just give to others, uh, to share the love of Christ with them, feed the hungry and help the sick and, uh, you know, proclaim the gospel. Uh, but uh, sometimes when you talk about money, people get really mad. They get really mad, 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 and they get crazy, and they go nuts, and they'll say something. You know, I hate you talking about money, you know. And then, you know, we know who, who some of these people are. And they forget that we actually can see how much money they give. And uh, when somebody whines about that, I always go to check how much money are they giving. A lot of times it's a goose egg. They're not giving anything. So why would they care? You know, they might give $5 a year, and they're just whining about money and stuff, and people, you know, but part of it's uh, because of the scarcity thinking. Some of it's an envy thing. You know, if somebody has something they don't have. You know the weirdest thing? And this wasn't part of the plan. But uh, on Facebook over the years, because I like, you know, we travel, we do some fun things, usually at the expense of other companies who pay for it. Praise the Lord. And uh, so the one thing that always puts people in a fit online is if I take a picture of us eating a lobster. 
Now, I don't know how much they think a lobster costs. Maybe they think it's like $150,000 or something. I mean, I don't know. But we, I actually do it now just for the pure joy of it. <laughs> I do. You know, like, we'll split it. We split a lobster. Well, you know, it was like 20 bucks. You know, it was nothing, especially if you're on that side of the ocean or whatever. But the people on Facebook, you know, and, you know, I'm never giving any more money to your church. I think, what is wrong? Then you'll look them up, and they never gave any money in the first place. So it's just, you know, people are crazy. You know, always, always, everything's so limited. And, uh, there's people who have a hard time, even like in mix, uh, blended families, where uh, I've talked to people, they have a hard time loving the other kids. They love their kids, but they have a really hard time. And I always, I've never, until I heard Tim talk last week, and I, they have a scarcity mentality. They really think that if they give too much love to someone else, it's taking from somebody else. It's taking from their kids, and it's absurd. There is no limit. They have, they have a very small piece, a, a, a pie, and they think it's just limited. Everything is a loss of the pie, and it's not true. We've got a big yo mama pie. Life is full of pie, praise the Lord. Some of us can testify to how much pie we have. Oh, it's fearful. Everybody's fearful. And uh, I, I mentioned last service, you know, one of the problems that Western, one of, we have so many, but one of the problems that Western culture is having is the uh, decline of population. This started, I remember when I was in school, they kept telling us there's too many people in the world. There's too many people in the world. You know, they, they start brainwashing these kids in school early on. And, oh, Lord. Some of the stuff they stick in their heads. Anyway, they were sticking in our heads. You know, there's too many people. Sir, you know, make sure you don't have only two kids. So most of our generation just had two kids. Well, the reality is you've got to have more than two to even keep up with the population because not everybody even can have kids. Not everybody even marries. The result is there's a scarcity mentality. The result of it is the populations are shrinking. Europe is in big trouble. Japan is hopeless. Spain, they say, they're so far down the death spiral, they'll never recover. It's just a matter of time before there'll be no Spaniards left. They just quit having children. There's entire cities where there are no children in the city. None. I was reading an article one that this, these one people moved in with their kids and everybody was overwhelmed because there was one child in the, in the town. I mean, it's crazy, this idea. Oh, yeah, we, you know, we've got to watch out. There's, there's only so much. When you have a scarcity mentality, and you're trying to protect it, the irony is this, you wind up with less. It actually makes it worse. There's people that, that suffer loss, and, uh, uh, and we all grieve when we suffer loss, but some people are devastated, by, and it's like they can never recover. And I, it clicked in my brain last, as he's talking, I think, I think they suffer from a scarcity mentality. That one person has gone, therefore I will never have anything that will fill that need again. And, and they just mourn forever. They can never break it, you know. Their mom died 10, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and they still can't function. You know, and look, I know what it's like to have a mom die, you know, but just, I've never struggled in this area because I don't have a scarcity mentality. There are people, if they lose a friend, they're devastated. They're devastated. They can't move on because they lost their friend. Don't have a scarcity mentality. There's a, get another friend! You know what I'm saying? You can't just pick up another mom, but you can get another friend. Well, actually, you can get another mom. You can. Connect with another family. Find some little old lady and just love the snot out of her. And all the little old lady said amen. <laughs> I don't know who you are out there, but 
And so you just repl- there's, there's not this limited time. If you think in this, and I'm telling you, as he was describing that, people were flying through my mind. I thought, oh, my goodness. That's why they act the way they act. That's why they struggle the way they struggle. Not to slam them, and if you have a struggle in this area, I'm not trying to slam you. I'm trying to encourage you. Think abundant mentality. There's more than enough. There is always more than enough. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. This morning, I want to talk about regifting. You know what regifting is? <laughs> you get a gift, and you think, gee, this really sucks. So <laughs> you package it up, and you give it to somebody else. You know, like fruitcake or something. You know, and if you like fruitcake, God bless you, but don't give me any fruitcake because I, I just never got into it. I just dreadful stuff. And uh, for me, anyway, and uh, I'll give it away to somebody else. Uh, but it's considered a very negative thing to do by some people. Uh, <laughs> the actual idea of free gifting became very popular in a, in a Seinfeld episode. Uh, Elaine was uh, yelling at... Uh, Dr. Tim Watley on the show because he had given Jerry a label maker that she had given him. You know, you're a re-gifter, you're a re-gifter. You know, they made a whole comedy thing of it, so the word's pretty popular now. Uh, the greatest risk, actually, in, in re-gifting is uh, forgetting who gave you what <laughs> and, and then re-gifting it back to them. That's the worst because that's... <laughs> Highly insulting. So by, by and large, regifting is as a negative connotation. But I, I want to talk to you this morning about regifting because God loves when you regift. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, uh, Jesus calls us 12 disciples. We see it in verse 1. Jesus calls us 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out uh, impure spirits, and heal every disease and sickness, even raising from the dead, which we'll see in a little bit. So these guys are with Jesus, these 12 guys, and they're watching him do stuff that is, would blow anybody's mind. Can you imagine what it had to be like to be around him? And it's the number of miracles and everywhere he went and the signs and people were blown away. I mean, we would all just be fried. So it's like you're watching all this. What? And then Jesus comes and he touches you and says, okay, now you can go do it too. Say what? And, and they did. They went and they started doing it. And they were blown away. One of the accounts, they came back. They were so excited about all this stuff that had happened. And I'll bet. Can you imagine? Somebody falls over dead and they're, oh, he's dead. And you go, well, let me go touch him. And he comes back to life. That's impressive. I mean, these guys were, it was blowing their minds. So Jesus gives them this power. It, then it names the 12. It says, first there was Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. By the way, it's really interesting how often in the Bible family works together. You know, that's kind of a negative thing that they call it, you know, what a nepotism and stuff. But it's really, the whole thing's family. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't Abraham, Raul, and Bob. Okay? These guys were all related to each other. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. I mean, this goes on and on. These people are all, there's something about faith in family 
And, and you talk about a legacy. That's your ultimate legacy. If you can leave a legacy of faith that touches your children and your children's children, and oh, man, that's, that's powerful stuff. So you got uh, these brothers, Philip uh, uh, and Bartholomew and Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, uh, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and the little rascal Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instruction. He gave them this power. And he says, number one, don't go by the Gentiles. We'll explain in a little bit why that is. But Gentiles are people who are not Jewish. Uh, and as I've taught before, a lot of people aren't aware of it, but in the beginning, all Christians were Jews. It wasn't like Christianity came along, tried to reach them. They were Jews in the first place. Uh, and I've always, you talk about stupidity. Some of these, you know, white extremists that hate Jews. You know, we, they hold of the Bible. We, our God-given Christianity, we hate Jews. And I think, you idiot, who do you think wrote the book is in your hand? We believe in Jesus. He was a Jew. His mom was a Jew. Everybody around him was Jews. I've never understood. I mean, it's one of the stupidest people who can't connect dots that I've ever seen in my life. But all Christians were Jews in the beginning, and they didn't think any of us could become Christians. It was one of the great big struggles in the early church. Then finally, then they fled us in. Hallelujah. So uh, anyway, so don't go to the Gentiles. And he says, or enter any towns of the Samaritans. The Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? All right. The Samaritans were, they were, Related to the Jews, but they didn't uh, keep as strict uh, policies as marrying uh, outside the faith and that kind of thing. So they considered them basically half-breeds uh, and uh, second-class citizens. Uh, Samaritans actually still exist to this day you know, over in Israel. There's still a Samaritan. The, the whole group of people still to this very day, there's a group called Samaritans. It's fascinating. I was reading about yesterday. Um, so anyway... Um, they, so they got that rift between them. And then they had a religious argument. One, the Jews said, you need to worship in Jerusalem. And the other guy said, oh, there's this other holy mount that you should worship in. And that was their big, their big argument. Uh, we read a little bit about the insight into the Samaritans in John's gospel where Jesus finds this woman. He's sitting by this well. And this woman comes up. We pick it up. John chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How could you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, Jesus associated anyway in this case and reached out and ministered to her. She was, uh, had her life changed by the gospel uh, and, and talking with Jesus. She was a little jacked up as he's talking to him. At one point, Jesus says, you know, why don't you go get your husband and and come back. And she kind of freaks. And she says, uh, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. Actually, you've had five. You haven't even bothered to marry the sixth one. It's like, who lines up to be number six? I don't understand. I'm not trying to be mean, right? But I'm thinking, five other guys didn't want you. Why would I want you? Apparently, she must have been quite the hot chick, but a little difficult to live with. But anyway, Jesus had quite the impact on her. But that's where we see Samaritans, you know, Pastor Bob a couple of weeks ago talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable, you all heard that, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who are the Samaritans? They were the icky people. We don't got these icky people. We don't like them. But in Jesus' parable, 
He talks about this guy who gets beat up and he's sitting by the side of the road and he's all bloodied uh, and this religious guy comes by and, and, and well, I can't stop. I've I got to get to Celebration Church. <laughs> Service started five minutes ago. I'm always late. You know, I, then another guy comes along. He's very religious and well, you know, I got to get to my small group Bible study and you know, he, he, he walks around him. And, and then the Samaritan keeps it, It's like whatever your version of a creepy person is, you know, I don't know. Maybe an, an ex-con who just got out of prison. Tattoos from head to toe on his Harley. With a beer in one hand. And he stops. And he helps the guy. And takes care of the guy. Gets him what he needs. Well, so when Jesus taught him the Good Samaritan, you know, we forget some of the connections here. This was insulting to them. You're saying the Jews didn't help him? No, the Samaritan helped him. Oh, well. The point was, true love is an action, right? You can say, I think and feel the whole thing, but if you don't help other people, if you don't encourage other people, you don't give to other people, then your religion is just in vain. So anyway, those are the Samaritans. So anyway, um, so Jesus says to the 12, he sent them out with the following instructions. Do not go to the Gentiles or to any town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Why? Because when Jesus came, remember, all the promises came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the line through the Messiah. They were the chosen people that God set aside, that the Messiah would come through. That's where Jesus comes from. And he comes first to them. But they reject him. John, in his gospel, writes it this way, talking about Jesus. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, talking about all of us now, because in the gospel was Jesus said, now go everywhere. In the beginning it was just, you know, stay from the Gentiles, the Samaritans, just go to the Jews. His initial ministry was all to Jews. But after his resurrection, he said, okay, now go. Take it to everybody. It blew everybody's mind. Those who did receive them, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's wills. See, they all thought they were set just because they were of Abraham's uh, descendants. That's not what it's about, but was born of God. You've been born again, you've been born of God. So that's why he said, uh, just go to the Jews. So he says, as you go, Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, do all this stuff. Now, freely you have received. Now, he gives them this power. How cool is this to have that kind of power? But he says, you've got this for You didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. I just gave it to you. There's no way you can earn that kind of status. And he just gives this to him freely. He says, freely you have received. And then he says, re-gift. <laughs> freely give. Freely you have received. Now package it up. Now give it to others. So they went out and they started doing all these things that Jesus had done in his quite I mean, that's how they were just changing their world at that time. 
This idea you have freely received, we've all freely received blessings from God. It's not so we can keep them. If you get blessings from God, I don't care if it's your job, I don't care if it's your family, your friends, or whatever it is, if you just take your blessings and you hang on to them, we're not doing this right. What are we supposed to do with all these gifts? We're supposed to turn around and we are to re-gift them. We are to, we've received love, we need to love. We've received forgiveness, we need to forgive. We've all these different things that we need to bless other people with. This is the concept. We freely received, now we have an obligation to re-gift, to freely give. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, Solomon was known as the wisest man who ever lived. Certainly what the Bible would say, but even if you were not a believer in those days, you'd have to admit, man, this is one smart cookie. Everything he touched succeeded. It, you talk, this is known as Israel's golden age. You know, right now the economy's hot. It's been going great. We're excited because woo-woo-woo for a whole, you know, year and a half, two years, things have finally turned around a little bit. Uh, maybe size nice not going to do so well. These guys had the entire life of Solomon, as long as he lived, everything prospered. You talk about a run on the stock market. I mean, this place went crazy. They were so successful financially. There were no wars. And this is really stunning. As best as we can tell, there were no wars. And these guys always had wars. David was nothing but a walking war machine. His dad, David, saw before him. There were always battles, right? They were always fighting. That was the culture. It had been that way for thousands of years. and Still wars to this day. His entire life, as far as we know, there were no wars prospered insanely. They were so wealthy. The Bible talks about the king's salary. He was paid in gold. Be nice to have a little extra gold, wouldn't it? A few ounces here and there. Gold's very expensive. A couple of pounds would be quite amazing. The Bible talks about how Solomon was paid in tons of gold. Ton, I mean, where do you even find tons of gold? But I mean, his wealth, just his personal wealth, was astronomical. But it wasn't just him, it was everywhere because he always knew. Can you imagine having politicians that always knew the perfect thing to do? Neither can I. <laughs> always the right decision. They, he made no mistakes. How do you not make a mistake? Because he, was, he had asked, God came to him. It's like this genie moment, you know, where you rub the... The, what do you call it? <laughs> lamp? Lantern? Whatever. Lamp. <laughs> From the lamp. And who this genie pops out. And whatever you wish. I'll give you three wishes. Well, God actually gives that moment to Solomon. He comes to him and says, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. Wow! The only person that we know ever in the history of the world who actually had this genie moment. It wasn't genie because it was God. Can you imagine God coming to you right up front and say, ask me anything you want. Pick anything and I'll give it to you. Well, most of us would have gone for the cash. I must confess I would. <laughs> I can have anything. Have a couple of billion would be really nice. The other thing in that day was crushing your enemies. A lot of guys back in that time would have said, give me the head of all my enemies. 
So God comes with this young guy. I don't know where this comes. Obviously, God had to know what, we, what he was going to choose or he wouldn't give him that thing. But he comes to him, and his answer to God was, give me wisdom. <laughs> oh, who thinks like that? And God says to him, because you did not ask for money or because of the death of your enemies, you're going to have peace and you're going to have more money than you know what to do with. And I'm going to give you the wisdom. He got it all. He got it all. This guy was brilliant. But he, his life was so prosperous that toward the end he actually became depressed <laughs> because nothing motivated him anymore. You see what I'm saying? Can you imagine we're just... So he writes this book called Ecclesiastes. If you want to read it in the Bible, it's very interesting. It's a bit strange because he's just totally bummed out. I read it from you a couple of months ago where he says, you know, what do you do with your life? I get married, work, and then die. You're going to die. Everybody dies. Who cares? I mean, he wasn't exactly the most encouraging guy in the world. But in verse 11 of this little book that he writes, or chapter 11, he says this, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Now, those of you who are older or have other uh, translations of the Bible, uh, most of it is translated, cast your bread upon the waters, which I never quite grasped uh, until I started looking into it. And the NIV, I always, I got a lot of problems with the NIV, but they nail this one. They interpret it right. We're not talking about throwing your bread on water, watching it float and come back. What it meant was put grain in the ships and send them out so that you can come back and have a return. He is brilliant with money. Everything he touches turns to gold. So he's telling them, he's encouraging people, invest. Put your grain on ships, let them cross the sea. They'll sell and come back with all these treasures and stuff. This was commerce that he's talking about. And then he, in the very next verse, he gets very specific. Invest, that's what he's talking about, this bread on the waters. Invest in seven ventures. Seven, most people wouldn't do one. If they do, they'll just do the one and be afraid the whole time. Man, invest in seven, diversify. And he goes, no, no, no eight. Because you don't know what disaster will come upon the land. Diversify. Be smart with your money. He understood money. This guy understood God. People who get this concept uh, tend to do well in life. He says this, whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap, you know. I don't know, it's a, it might rain today. I don't think we'll put the ships out today, you know. Always looking, every little thing, clouds, everything. They might see on the horizon, they, 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 they pull back, they withdraw, they don't do anything. These are the people who don't get anything. That's the crazy thing about scarcity mentality. Not only do you fight to keep the little you have, be it your money or your friends, your relationships, or whatever in the world you do, your kids, the thing is, the more you think about it, the less you have. It doesn't go anywhere. And at the end, you got nothing. Shake off the scarcity mentality. Understand that we have been given much. And for God, there are no limitations. He's saying to the people, don't be too afraid to invest. Good advice still even to this day. Don't have a scarcity mentality or you might end up with scarcity. You see, investing in business and business opportunities and investing in the kingdom of God is exactly the same. Of course, the difference is one pays a lot better dividends than the other. God's kingdom never goes bust. And not only do we have eternal 
dividends, which is coming. A lot of people say, well, that's in heaven. Don't, don't push off this. This is going to be right here. All right? I've given you this example many times. Think of the last 20 years of your life. Can you all process that? Everybody just think of some of you only 12 is I can work with. Think of the last 20 years of your life. How fast did it go? That was it. Then the next. And then the next. You only get like four or five if you're on a roll. Don't think, ah, out there. You, we, we need to think about heaven. We need to think about eternity. It's going to be right here before you know it. But not just in heaven, but even right here on earth. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. He's not talking about in heaven. He's talking about, he says, will men give into your bosom? Other translations. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured to you. What is he saying? Have a generous mentality. The more generous you are, the more generous people will be to you. Paul, uh, we're getting ready to take this, this offering, this annual legacy offering, where we're just taking it beyond our regular giving. Our regular giving pays for you know, everything out of the campuses and the salaries and the lights and you know, our basic expenses. This offering is just above and beyond. We're just taking extra money so we can basically just give it away. Give it in, in so many different ways. Give it to, for people to, to hear about Christ for the first time, to, to, for orphanages, for people who are sick, for all these different homeless, whatever situation that we've given. This is our way to give above and beyond and invest in the kingdom of God. So Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians in, in the second letter to the Corinthians, wanted to take a special offering for some churches that were struggling. And the same kind of thing that we're talking about now. He's asking them, would you give above and beyond? Would you do something special above and beyond? And this is what he says to them. This is in a chapter 9 of his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He's making his case to them. And he says, now remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. You can't escape it. It is what it is. Now, we don't like this. What we want is, God, help me win the lottery, and then I can give a bunch of money. You have no idea how many people pray that prayer. <laughs> I think those prayers just irritate God. It's like, oh, stop. This isn't the way this works. You don't get a bunch and now you become generous. So many people ever think that. Oh, if I just won the lottery, if just this thing happens, then I'll become generous. And here's what you don't realize. More often than not, even if that happens to you, you won't be generous. If you're not generous with a little, you won't be generous with a lot. It's just a fact. I don't believe that. Well, it happens all the time. It doesn't work that way. He says, sow first and then you reap. It's, it's, it's kind of like a farmer who says to God, you know, give me a bunch of corn and, and then I'll go plant some. No, that's not how it works. You want corn, you got to go plant corn. And if you plant it, then you get a whole bunch more. That's the way it works. He says, each of you should give what you've decided on in, in your heart to give. Pastor, how much should I give? It's up to you. And no one's saying put your family at risk, but sacrifice a little bit. It should sting a little. If it doesn't sting a little bit, you're not doing this right. I'm not talking about inflicting pain. I'm like, ouch, ouch. Do something. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need. How many would love to have all that you need all the time? I'm going to raise both hands because I would like to have all that I need. The rest of you don't want anything. Then I'll keep it. All right, good. Having all that you need. 
You'll be able to abound in every good work. You'll be enriched in every way. Why? So you can sit around and just keep it? No. He will bless you so that you can be generous on every occasion. Again, we think, God, help me to become, get a whole bunch of, and then I'll be generous. That's not the way it works. You start sowing, and God will bless you, and then you become even more generous. God wants to, God loves to bless people, by the way. And I hope all y'all get really blessed. Oh, y'all, listen to me right now. Be blessed out of your socks. Uh, one of the great keys of this church being super successful and touching millions and millions of people's lives is if some of y'all get really successful financially. Have a business idea. Do really well. You say, well, would God do that? Yeah. If you get away from a scarcity mentality, God wants you to be blessed. Invest. Think of some ideas. As I travel around the world in these churches, these big churches, these churches exist primarily. I mean, there's a lot of people that go to them. But most of it's carried by a, a relatively small bunch of people at every congregation who just has a lot of money. God has blessed them. They've been really successful. And they give just like everybody else. But now the numbers have changed. For some people this morning, giving $100 would really sting. That would be a stretch. For some of us, we could do thousands. That would stretch. Some of us could do 100000 But you get people who are making really good money. It changes. The numbers just change. And this helps advance the kingdom of God. I hope you all become insanely crazily successful. Paul said, remember what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's re-gift this morning. At our various campuses, what we're going to do is we're, I'm going to ask our ushers to come down and get ready to serve communion at all the campuses. And uh, I want to re-gift to you this morning if you're here visiting for the first, and by the way, if you're visiting, nobody expects you to give anything here. Uh, you know, if you'd like to, you certainly can. Generous people just like to give. So even if you're visiting, if you want to give, you can certainly give. Uh, but what I want to re-gift to you is this wonderful thing we've been singing about and celebrating all morning. Is this, this wonderful joy of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. That's what we're going to celebrate while we do communion here. His body was broken so we could be whole. His blood was shed so we could have forgiveness of sins. If you've never truly encountered Jesus Christ like that in your life, we're going to pray a prayer together right now. I'm going to ask everybody to pray along with this prayer with me. But if you will pray this prayer and, and really mean it from the bottom of your heart, you can take your first steps of faith. You can start to experience this forgiveness and this joy and this celebration that is going on in all of us this morning as we share this wonderful life uh, because of what Jesus made possible with us. We want to re-gift that, if you will. We've gotten it, and when we take a moment, to share it with you. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and that you love me so much you went to the cross and took my punishment. I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins. I now surrender myself to you. 